Rusty Quill presents. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Hainai by Motsi Dapu, episode 34.1, Cueva. Is this working? Hello? God, I grew up with these things. You'd think I know how to play it back. Ugh, whatever. Let's just keep going. So, Evelyn, if you're the one listening to this, I mean, could be Donner, for all I know. Ugh. This better not be the first thing Donner hears from me after the damn camping trip. Hey, Shuta, is there any way to cut this out? <sighs> right, okay. <laughs> I better not run out of tape. So, context. It is early October. Evelyn uncovered a lot of material about the Elders, and I mean a lot. She told us a story about an Elder known as the Puppet Master, and their war with our notorious benefactor. Currently, Donner and Laura have taken it upon themselves to do a little bit more digging, with Donner talking to Vanessa and Laura talking to CJ. I wanted to help where I could, so Evelyn asked me to help sort through Elaine O'Donnell's old records, which means papers. Lots of papers. Lots of dust, too. If evil magic immortals don't kill me, my asthma could come back and do the job for them. 
In any case, she asked me to help sort through these files to see if anything might help us learn more about the benefactor. Any mention of him or the puppet master. Any clue how to defeat him, because apparently even our actual elder compatriots don't know. And ugh, I feel itchy just thinking about having to work with them to go after the bigger fish. Or maybe that's just a dust allergy. <sighs> I did feel something. The sense memory of elder power that I've started to familiarize myself with. Against my will. Foci. Not what I expected to learn about when I touched that poisonous baby bottle all those months ago and felt death and fear so potent that my body couldn't handle it. I don't think there's a focus in these papers, but I did find some documentation that carries the faintest stench, for lack of a better word, of elder magic. They're stories. I skim them. They don't mention any names I recognize, but from what I can tell, they're stories of people who died. Something else I noticed is that these papers were stamped with these initials. C.B. I don't know what it stands for, but if we get a list of elder names, we might be able to match them to someone. Or maybe it just means something entirely unrelated. All I know is that these stories of death are related to the elders in some way. So I'll be reading them out here. I sure hope this isn't the kind of thing where I'll get cursed if I read it out loud. Hi, <laughs> Bakla. Okay, okay, now I'm ready to read these stories. I just had to take necessary precautions. Just in case. Here's the first story. I hesitate to write this all down, given what the sort of medium has done for Bolden. But with what's to come, I don't want these stories to be forgotten. So I write them down, to remember them, because people deserve to be remembered. Because people deserve more than to have their deaths used as nothing more than fuel for their killers. This first story happened to one Sylvia Lewin. This took place sometime in the 1970s, date unknown. Sylvia was an avid caver alongside her husband, and they were experienced enough that they had not had a single incident, not in the ten years they'd been married, nor the dozens of trips they'd taken, exploring Ontario's natural wonders and complex cave systems. They'd even helped map a few of these systems themselves, working with Sylvia's friend, Arturo, who was a speleologist by trade. In that way, exploring the wild was as natural to them as playing chords to a musician, so their long trips away from the city were never a cause for concern. This was why their deaths 
which a colleague of mine, the caustic Mr. Lawson, covered some years ago, were marked unusual. I remember the case well, when that issue of the paper went to print. A caving trip. Five people gone down into a caving system just a few hours north of Toronto. And six corpses found. The way Bolden described it in his story, which I am examining in safe conditions, conditions which I have detailed in another document entitled A Spoonful of Sugar, in case the resources needed. One Sylvia Lewin reported their expedition to local authorities, and she and her husband Harold, accompanied by two of Harold's friends, Joseph Martin and Gerald Smith, and Sylvia's friend, the speleologist, Arturo Velasquez. Sylvia was not eager to have Martin and Smith on, if only because they weren't experienced enough in her eyes. Harold defended them, arguing that if Sylvia could bring a friend of hers to a trip that was meant to be just the two of them, then so could he. Not the worst thing a husband has said to his wife, not by a long shot, but still, not the best of signs. It was clear enough that Sylvia's friend Arturo was much more well-equipped for their expedition, while Martin and Smith were the worst of amateurs. It was challenge enough, apparently, to get them to bring the correct equipment, and Harold had to cover for them with extras of his own, apparently already prepared for their incompetence. Still, Harold appealed to his wife's good graces, and Sylvia chose to focus on assisting Lopez in his record-taking, all the while leaving her husband time to enjoy his friend's company. Bolden once told me what he sees when he puts these depths down into writing. He was very open. He wanted someone to hear him. He trusted me. His mistake. He told me it plays for him. Something like a film, but not quite. More like a book, a limited third-person perspective. He could see the events laid out before him, as though omniscient, but he could also see it from the perspective of his chosen... protagonist. The soul compels the telling, he said, and though all five of them were taken by the same miasma, the same focus, the same elder, Sylvia was the one who had the most to offer, and was, by his account, the most interesting person there. They arrived early in the morning, having touch base with local groups, letting them know where to find them in case they were overdue. The nearby forest was apparently home to wolves, so they were told, quite harshly, by a steel-eyed warden whose patience had been worn thin decades ago, to stick to the path, and not to try their luck with the nearby woods. Harold's friends laughed as though it was a grand joke, and Martin expressed regret that he didn't bring his hunting rifle. Harold, a bit sheepishly, a bit proudly, said he hardly needed a gun, showing them a steel-folding knife that Sylvia had gifted him last Christmas. 
when Martin questioned how useful it could possibly be to kill a predator with. Harold shook his head. It's meant to cut rope, or hair, or even cut meat. It isn't made for killing. Come on now, Joe. They parked their trucks and hiked the rest of the way, partway into the woods, to find the rocky incline that led into the Cohen cave system. By the time they arrived in the strange maw, stalactites and stalagmites forming in nature what to human eyes looked like sharp teeth, there was enough direct sunlight to shine their way in. The stones sparkled with morning dew, and Sylvia took a moment to appreciate the sight, breathe the cool morning air. She closed her eyes, listening to distant bird song, and when she opened them, she saw a strange look on Arturo's face, like he scented something foul. What is it? she'd asked, and Arturo asked if she could smell what he did. All she could scent was the fresh forest, so Arturo clarified. When I was a boy, I grew up on my family's farm. We raised livestock, chickens. Once, one of the workers asked me to help him kill a chicken that we would have for dinner. Asked me to help him hold it steady as he slit its throat and let the blood pour into this little bowl. It had a smell. Fresh blood. Not a rotten smell, just... Warm blood, near my face, close enough to waft. It stays with you, that smell. I thought I smelled it here, fresh blood, fresh death. He said it in such matter-of-fact tones that Sylvia didn't want to seem hysterical in her disgust. After all, she ate chicken all the time, just because she didn't do the killing. Do you smell it now? Sylvia asked, instead, trying to calm the swirl of thoughts about blood and slit throats. Arturo sniffed the air one more time over his handsome mustache and sighed. No, but I could have sworn. Perhaps it was just something carried on the wind. They did say they were wolves. Come on, then, he said, regaining his good humor. Help me suit up, and I'll assist you as well. Harold seems to have his hands full. And indeed, Harold was busy, showing his friends how to put their gear on, from harness to helmet, a task Sylvia did not envy. As she finished up, she tested the light on her helmet in the direction of the forest, and for a moment she thought she saw something move in the shadows. The flash of a single eye gone as soon as she focused her light on one spot. An animal she spooked, hopefully not a dangerous one. Her experience with caves did not extend to wild animals in dense Canadian forests. When they were all finally prepared to enter, with the sun high in the sky, Sylvia gave the outside world one last look, and in the distant slope of a nearby mountain, she thought she saw something move in the trees, like a deer, or, perhaps, a wolf. But from that distance, it made no sense for it to be a wolf. After all, if it was just a wolf, well, <laughs> it would have been the size of an elephant. Though they had to light their way for the first half hour of their steady walk,
they eventually found themselves in a previously documented sunlit cavern, from which a few paths led that were lesser known. This was where they set up, as Arturo began carefully digging up embedded stone, studying it in the light, while Sylvia matched each tunnel to an older record, noting that at least one was partially caved in, while others were a bit more difficult to access if they weren't abseiling from the opening above. Harold found her as she tested climbing equipment on the stone wall, looking tired, giving her the gentle kind of smile that made her forget when he annoyed her. Finally escaped, she joked, handing him a piton. I pleaded clemency, told them I wanted to return to my loving wife. They almost didn't believe me. He'd returned, in good humor. It made her smile. He'd always been good at that, making her smile. Even when, at times, it made it a little too easy to forget their little disagreements. She had him help her scale the rock face so she could get a good look at an elevated tunnel, and he followed her, peering into the deep, dark path that seemed to shrink the further it went. It seemed passable, if a bit tight. Perhaps we'll leave Joe and Gerald here for this one, Sylvia had suggested, and Harold seemed to agree. Earlier on, out of curiosity, she asked Harold why they wanted to come in the first place, given their experience, or lack thereof. She wondered if they mistook it for what they were more used to, hunting, or camping, even hiking. It seemed that they were tired of their home lives, and, though it went unsaid, their wives, and wanted to experience a brand new adventure. And they thought of him. Old friends from college, practically brothers. And they wanted to see what the fuss was about, that Harold was spending all his time doing it, and leaving hardly any time to join his brothers on their hikes. If they were really family, Sylvia thought, they'd be the kind I couldn't stand. Like you with Cousin Helga. Hey now, Harold said, a bit defensive. They're just a bit rough around the edges. And only then did Sylvia realize that she'd spoken her thought out loud. She was mortified, but thankfully, Harold was a gentle soul. Forgiving. Kind. She didn't know what came over her. When she and Harold rejoined the rest of their team, it seemed that Joe and Gerald had struck up conversation with Arturo, who was explaining his work mapping and updating cave guides, which at least Joe seemed genuinely interested in. Arturo took note of the couple's observations when they returned, and seemed troubled by what they found. There should be minimal seismic activity in this area, if any at all. I'd say it was caused by human interference, but it would have required something heavy-duty. Would dynamite do it? Joe asked. We've used it for controlled demolition before. Well, yes, but... I couldn't imagine why someone would bother. Well, maybe they were trying to hide something, Gerald offered, arms crossed and eyes narrowing. It was good a theory as any, but with what information they had, all Arturo and the Lewins could do was take note and report it when they got back. It was no surprise to Sylvia that Joe and Gerald didn't want to be left behind in the cavern while she and Harold explored tunnels. They ended up having split up, with Harold leading the two through a much wider tunnel, 
while Sylvia and Arturo took the elevated tunnel which got thinner and thinner as it went on. It might have been frightening for anyone else. The stone around them felt unyielding, but they were aware of the risks, and knew to keep their heads. And for Sylvia, the feeling of being surrounded, the closeness of the stone, it felt safe. It felt like an all-encompassing embrace by Mother Earth herself. Harold once joked that she had the opposite of claustrophobia. Not a fear of open spaces, but a love of closed ones. She'd once opened up to him about times when she was a young child. There was this headboard cabinet at the top of her parents' bed that she'd crawl into, curled up tight as a ball, and she'd close the door and fall asleep that way. She got too big for the cabinet eventually. Now, she only felt the same when she was on her belly, in a particularly narrow tunnel, and Harold would jokingly tell her not to fall asleep on him. <sighs> Harold wasn't here now, but that was fine. Sylvia led, and found herself on hands and knees as she edged forward. This path had been marked on the records, it was meant to be this narrow, but would eventually open up to a smaller chamber, just enough for a shorter person to stand up in. With a glib, friendly joke from Arturo requesting Sylvia avoid passing gas, Sylvia finally found more space to move, to take some deep breaths as she saw the light of her helmet shine against the far wall. It was a peaceful place, quiet. She didn't realize how much she was missing the quiet. Not with the boys chatting up a storm about old times all the way up to the forest. The only sound she could hear now was the subtle dripping of water. There was a stream near this area, she remembered, and the cave felt refreshingly cool. And Arturo, brushing off his knees as he stood. She shut her light off briefly, and they both marveled at the strange luminescence of the flora growing in pure darkness, or perhaps some organisms feeding from the moss. It was a sight she wished she could share with her husband, though Arturo was a pleasant enough companion. The man in question got low to the ground to examine the things crawling between cracks in the stone. Strange, he said. I didn't see any live organisms in the main cavern, he explained. When Sylvia asked, only here, not even insects, even the stones didn't seem to match the conditions they're in. What does that mean? Sylvia asked. It was a strange observation, something she couldn't quite believe if it wasn't coming from Arturo, who was one of the most level-headed people she knew. I don't know, it's just strange especially given how much more open it was. There definitely should have been more flora and fauna. Well, in the very least, we can report the anomaly to the warden. Maybe they can get some experts to look into this. It might be... Their conversation was interrupted when suddenly the ground underneath and around them began to shake, a sound like a passing aircraft surrounding them. Sylvia grabbed Arthur's shoulder, her heart pounding. She'd been briefed on underground earthquakes long ago, 
She knew they were safer where they were than in the gigantic cavern where debris could fall, but still. Over the noise that was quickly dissipating, she heard something odd and realized that Arturo was humming. What's that? Why, it's a Christmas song. I've never heard it before. It's brand new, in Spanish. I ought to lend you my record when we get back to the city. Jose Felicano's a genius. He kept humming, as though to comfort her, wrapping an arm around her shoulder and squeezing. And though it wasn't proper, she did the same around his waist and squeezed back. Eventually, it was safe enough to go back, and the two of them got ready to crawl. There was a small possibility something had shifted in the tunnel, but it was much less likely than in the cavern, and so they were optimistic. This time, Arturo led, and Silvia followed close behind. Just be careful, he said, when they eventually got to the part of the tunnel where they could get up and walk. There was something strange about the cavern now, though Sylvia couldn't put her finger on it. The sun had definitely moved, but that was to be expected, and the lighting was different. Maybe it was that? But when they tried to climb down, Arturo seemed puzzled. The pegs, he said. They're gone. And they were. The spikes Sylvia had driven into the earth were all gone. It made no sense. No earthquake would have been strong enough to undo them, and even if it had been the earthquake, the spikes would be on the ground. They had to get down another way, with Arturo making the jump and helping Sylvia down. From the center of the cavern, Arturo observed exactly what was so off about the whole thing, getting on one knee and looking at the ground. They're here, he said. Organisms, insects. You can hear them, too, animals. I didn't realize how quiet it was before. As Arturo took notes in his journal, Sylvia thought she saw something embedded in the rock nearby above them, so she went to examine it, and her own startled scream echoed in the cavern. Stuck between the stones was a body, hanging halfway down like a misshapen stalactite. From afar, it might have been mistaken for something else, if only because it was missing a key feature. Its head. From what she could see, it was an old corpse, drained of blood long ago from its position. It seemed mummified, close to being all bones, but not quite there yet. It thankfully didn't have the smell of fresh death, or the stench of rot. But the question of its missing head. It had certainly not been there before, but it was just another of many things that weren't adding up. Arturo grabbed her shoulders and hugged her, looking pale as he realized what she saw. She heard him mutter, Dios mío, Santa Maria, under his breath, crossing himself. We need to report to the warden, he said. We need to go. Wait. Harold and the boys aren't back yet. What if... What if something happened? What if the earthquake... We have to go get them. Arturo seemed reluctant, but 
It seemed that after weighing the options, he chose not to leave his poor friend alone to search for her husband and his companions. And with everything that was happening, it was probably not a good idea to split up. In the tunnel where the three men entered, there was space enough to move together rather than in a line, and it allowed Sylvia to see the expressions on Arturo's face. The moment his face scrunched up like before, she was concerned. Fresh blood, again? she asked, feeling fear clench her heart at the thought that someone was hurt. Arturo could only nod, and their steps sped up. There were parts of the tunnel where they had to slip through tighter cracks, but it was overall a much easier journey than their own. Still, there was an uneasiness to it, and Arturo asked if he could turn their flashlights off, because he had a theory that he wanted to test. When they did, they could see the glow of the strange moss and organisms that lived within, and after a little bit more walking, Sylvia saw what Arturo seemed to expect, that there was a point where the glow just stopped. The air, which had been cool and clean, felt just a little more oppressive, even when the path before them seemed to grow wider. I don't think we should keep going, said Arturo, and Sylvia might have agreed. But then she thought of Harold, and she plowed forward anyway. Slowly but surely, the darkness of the path gave way to faint sunlight, and Sylvia found herself at the mouth of the tunnel. Right back in the cavern. This time, it had no body hanging from above. This time, it had three men who were resting under the sun where it had been this morning, where it hadn't moved since. Harold shouted her name, but he did not go to her, and she realized why. His leg had been bloodied, wrapped in their medical supplies around his thigh. That damn earthquake, said Joe, as Sylvia fussed over her husband. Got him right in the leg. We better get him out before anything else happens. Right so? Sylvia almost replied, but felt Harold's grip tighten on her wrist, though she didn't know why. The look on his face seemed tired, but happy to see her. His grip persisted, however, and she gave Joe the limpest of agreements as she helped Harold up, his arm over her shoulder got a little easier when Arturo took up the other side, and they both helped Harold towards the tunnel they had all first entered from. It's strange, Arturo whispered. So strange. I know, Sylvia said. But we need to focus on getting Harold somewhere safe before anything else. Harold pressed his lips against Sylvia's cheek, and she wondered if he was out of it, if the loss of blood was making him act odd when he whispered in her ear, It wasn't the earthquake. Sylvia nearly stumbled, but she held steady. She looked at Arturo, who seemed to have heard what Harold said. We lost our lights, or I did anyway, in the dark, when the earthquake happened, loud like a jet passing over. Something stabbed my leg. It wasn't debris. Not a stone fell from the ceiling. It was metal. I could feel it. Sylvia felt the hairs on her neck stand on end, 
as she heard the heavy bootsteps of the men behind her. Her heart was beating so loud she could hear it in her ears. Though they stayed calm, taking their steady steps forward, lights shining their way through. They'd get out. They'd get out, get in separate trucks, and they'd call the authorities. They'd report what they saw and what these men did, and when they reached the end of the tunnel, sun lighting their way. Oh, God. It was a cavern, once again. That's impossible, said Gerald, pushing his way forward. Did you walk us in a circle? We walked in a straight line, Harold pointed out, tense in their hold. Liar, said Joe. When he came forward, Arturo held a hand out and put it on his chest to keep him at arm's length. Calm down, friend. Something strange is happening, and we must keep our heads. And they did. For a while. Sylvia stayed with Harold and Gerald as Arturo and Joe did one more run of the exit tunnel and ended up exactly where they were. Then, Arturo and Sylvia tried the elevated tunnel once more, climbing spikes that were there once again, but even when they found themselves in the little space where living organisms lit up the stone, there was no way forward, and they returned to the room with the three men, no headless body hang from the ceiling. With one look between them, Sylvia knew. They could not tell the others about the body. No sense in bringing more tension to an already tense and frightening situation. For the last tunnel they could explore, Sylvia went with Gerald, taking the path they hadn't yet gone through. When part of it required getting low to the ground, he seemed reluctant to do so. But Sylvia gave him firm but gentle instruction, encouraging him as she showed him the movement to clear the tighter space without getting too overwhelmed. I don't know how you do it, said Gerald, huffing as he pulled himself forward by his elbows. Mother Earth never frightened me, said Sylvia, helping him through. I feel more at home here than in my own home sometimes. When it's when it's normal. The earth doesn't change much at all when it's normal. But none of this is normal, said Gerald. None of it. Was it the earthquake? Why can't we get out? I don't know. But I promise we will, Sylvia said. Because if this doesn't lead anywhere, there's one thing we haven't tried. Using what tools they had, Sylvia scaled the highest point of the rock wall that could hold her. The only other person that might have had stamina was Harold, but he was out of commission. And though Arturo had experience with abseiling, he wasn't much of a climber. It took some doing, this task. It didn't escape their notice that the sun hardly moved in the sky, though at this point, hours had passed. From her vantage point, she could see Gerald sitting and looking grim, Joe pacing the ground until Arturo invited him to sit, and Harold, well, Harold kept his eyes on her, watching her progress. Now came the hard part. 
She wasn't much of a thrower, but had to swing a hook up and over the opening that led outside. The plan was that she could secure climbing tools and go get help, especially with Harold's condition. Nothing frightened her underground. Nothing except... Well... She feared for Harold. Her husband. She feared what would happen if she didn't get help. She allowed that to give her strength as she swung, and swung, and swung. You're getting nowhere with that, said Joe. Someone ought to go up there and help her. Well, we know you can't make the climb, Joe, so what now, said Harold, a bit more caustically, and Joe grimaced in annoyance. What is wrong with you, he demanded. Really? He's in pain, Arturo defended, gently. No, before, in the tunnel, now... Joe began, but he didn't finish, shaking his head and smacking Gerald away when he came over to mediate. Sylvia didn't give it much thought before. She only knew that if she didn't hurry, things would get much worse, and the men's tempers hotter, and she needed to get them all out of the strange place that was hardly the underground she knew. It took a few more tries before it finally caught, and she yelped in triumph as she tested the rope. With it, she was able to start setting the last of her spikes to make the climb, secure her in case anything happened at the top. I have it, she called, and the others interrupted their argument to pay attention. I can get to the warden. Get us more equipment. Arturo, how long can you last? I would have said nightfall, but... Arturo answered, gesturing to the unmoving sun. Right. I'll go as fast as I can. Just be safe, hun, said Harold. You don't know what's out there. And that was a chilling reminder, as she climbed into the sunlit overground, the noonday rays blinding her for just a moment. Even as strange as it had begun to act, the underground was safe. But what was there to await her, outside of it? Her answer came sooner than she expected, when she opened her eyes and found darkness surrounding her. It was nighttime, long since. She could hear the near-deafening sounds of an active forest, full of animals in the underbrush and evening birds, rustling leaves and movement, not the peaceful silence of stone surrounding her. She already missed it, but she had to hurry. Rushing back to the truck, she found equipment and an emergency radio they'd packed, and she was able to report the accident to the nearby warden, who yelled at her for being overdue before realizing why. She didn't tell them about the strangeness, the lack of life, the headless body, the ever-present noonday sun. After all, that was crazy. And she wasn't crazy, not in the least. Weighed down by supplies, she ran back to the opening, taking no path and lighting her way with her helmet, hoping it would scare away any predators. When she finally returned to the opening in the cavern, shining her light into the dark hole, she couldn't see anything. Called into the dark, but couldn't hear anything. Sylvia Lewin, for the first time since seeing that body hanging from the rocks, was afraid, but not for herself. She was afraid for her husband, her friend Arturo, and even Joe and Gerald, despite her misgivings. She was afraid that she left them alone and something changed while she was gone, and that was... enough. 
She lowered the supplies first, until they touched the ground, and then she carefully lowered herself down, ensuring that everything was secure before she made the trip. When she was halfway down, it was near pitch black, but for the barest hint of moonlight shining down, eventually disappearing behind the clouds. She felt her heart in her throat when she heard the growl. Guttural. Deep. And so loud it was like a distant earthquake. And she looked up to see bright eyes against the great, shadowed head, staring her down. She couldn't see much else, but when the moon appeared once more, she saw light shine over pearly white teeth, shining with spittle from an enormous muzzle. Sylvia did not scream, though it felt like her heart would burst out of her chest from how loud it was beating. Finally, finally, she touched the ground, and the thing, whatever it was, left her in a huff, like it was giving up. When Sylvia pointed her light to the ground, the stone sparkled and shone in a way she was familiar with. There were plants, insects, moving under her feet. And when she looked up, she saw the body, without a head, hanging from the stalactites. She was in a different place, she knew. And she had to find her way back to them, to Harold and Arturo and Gerald and Joe. She chose the widest path, supplies in tow. She walked and walked, allowing the stone that surrounded her to keep her steady. It was safe here. It was safe. She found herself hurrying when a strange scent entered her nose. Like blood. Fresh blood. A chicken with its throat slit. Its warm blood pouring into a bowl. She saw the sunlight first, then she saw the blood. Arturo on the ground, blood pouring from his neck, while Joe was on him, trying to help, trying to stem the bleeding. Gerald, holding Harold down, shouting at him to calm down for God's sake. Then Harold called her name. And Gerald looked up to see her at the mouth of the tunnel, and Harold took his knife from his boot, the knife she'd gifted him for Christmas, and stabbed Gerald in the side. In that moment, Sylvia couldn't move. Frozen to the spot, terrified because that was her husband, who she trusted, he must have had a good reason to to hurt Arturo, who had only ever been kind to Sylvia, and comforted her when she was afraid. To stab Gerald, his old friend, his brother. She couldn't remember the rest. She couldn't remember when she moved. She couldn't remember what she did. She could only remember when Gerald took her by the wrist, loosening the grip of her little pickaxe in her hand, the one she had in her bag, the one that she used for climbing. 
When did she grab it? She didn't... She didn't know. There was a bit of pain. Slashes on her arms from a sharp knife. The pickaxe, it was covered in blood and... Something else. There was something on the ground, but Gerald didn't let her see it. Joe finished wrapping bandages around Arturo's neck, gentle but tight enough to keep him from bleeding out. It was a difficult balance, but he was so gentle, so kind, for a man she thought was a killer with his gun and his hunting, and she had been so convinced she didn't like his friends, but here they were, supporting each other, supporting her dear Arturo after... And now, Gerald was cleaning her arms, wrapping them. She had to get them out, safe. It was the least she could do, after everything. She led them through the tunnel, with Joe and Gerald keeping Arturo upright, taking his weight. The stone surrounded them, silent comfort, until she heard a faint noise, more comforting than even the silence. Arturo, gently humming, guiding them along, until eventually they found themselves at the end of the path, where Sylvia saw sunlight. <clears throat> Here's the report from Mr. Lawson. They dispatched authorities to the area where the call from Sylvia Lewin came in, though she never made it to the warden, seemingly returning to assist her companions. They found that Mrs. Lewin chose not to stick to the main path, through which most visitors entered Cohen Caves upon her return, but instead repelled through an opening above the largest cavern, leaving her rope and climbing gear still attached. The first body was found hanging from stalactites in that cavern, a much older body, seemingly unnoticed for many years. It was without a head, though the cause of death could not reliably be identified at the time. Later, a thorough examination of the body suggested that the head had been torn off by violent means, perhaps by a large predator. Though the body was never identified, or matched to any missing persons, the clothing seemed to indicate someone of means, from a much older generation. Most significantly, it did not match a description of any of the five from the caving trip. The second body they found was within one of the tunnels, Mr. Harold Lewin, who seemed to have died from a heart attack. There were no marks on his body to indicate violence, apart from a slightly cracked skull, which coroners concluded was from falling to the ground. The third and fourth bodies were found in the entrance tunnel, slumped together near the mouth of the cave. It was inexplicable, as they might have been able to exit the cave had they continued a few more feet, but instead, they seemed to have passed away right then and there. One body was that of Arturo Velasquez, who passed away from blood loss, unable to get emergency care. Joseph Martin held his body. From the reports, Joseph also died from a heart attack, 
seemingly soon after Velasquez passed away. The last bodies to be discovered were found a week later, when some experienced cavers explored the rest of the tunnels. Gerald Smith, whose body was found in the narrowest tunnel, was seemingly unable to get through on his own, hampered by what appeared to be a fresh wound inside. Later evidence suggests that he had been stabbed with a folding knife found on the scene, carried in Smith's own boot. It is unclear if Smith stabbed himself, but highly unlikely, according to reports. The expert cavers said that it was easy to lose your composure if you are not taught the methods to crawl forward or backward through tight spaces, and it seemed that Smith passed away from a mix of blood loss and lack of oxygen, likely due to panic and minimal air. The final body was only recovered after Smith was removed from the tunnel. In a small cavern, covered in small insects, a faint glow showing in the darkness, on the ceiling and along her body, was Sylvia Lewin. She was curled up as though she was only sleeping. When they brought her in for examination, they found her hands covered in blood. Apart from her own blood, which seemed to have come from multiple lacerations along her arms, the blood was identified to be her husband's. But the amount of blood did not match the way in which Harold Lewin died, from a heart attack. There was not a single scratch on him, barely any blood from striking the stone in his fall. It was blood seemingly from nowhere, and the mystery persisted for some years surrounding Cohen, driving more people into searching for answers. Where Sylvia Lewin got all that blood? How all five passed away when some could have left as easily as they had entered? How multiple seemingly healthy adults all suffered heart attacks, and what happened to Velasquez and Smith? When I asked Bolton about this, he told me what he knew. There was a focus, of course, but it was a little more complicated than that. He said that that forest had things more powerful than even elders, well, most elders. He said that some of their more presumptive, egotistical compatriots wanted to hunt those legends down, bend them to their will. He said that it ended about as well as you might expect. An elder without a head, and his companion simply gone. Dragged off, eaten, bones scattered and swallowed by the earth. The body itself, well, he carried a focus with him that was later retrieved, hidden in one impassable tunnel, partly caved in. And that focus did what folk I do. It fed off fear. And Harold Lewin, afraid of being judged by both his friends and his wife, afraid of losing her to charming sweet Arturo while he was away, was an easy first victim. The rest were near as easy. Arturo Velasquez feared blood, and the knife cutting flesh. He feared dying the way he remembered the chicken in his hands dying, bleeding from the neck to feed another that cared nothing for him. Joseph Martin drew his courage from others, despite his bravado, and he had latched onto Velasquez, who seemed to know all there was to know, and who had such a certainty about him.
He died, afraid, when Arturo breathed his last, and he could not find the others, truly alone. Somehow, it was only Gerald that truly feared the underground and all it entailed, getting caught in the press of unfamiliar stone that he feared would collapse on them, that one earthquake would bury him alive and nobody would come to save him. He couldn't hear Sylvia call his name, couldn't reach out to her, before he died of fright, unable to breathe in the press of the earth. And Sylvia, well, Sylvia was not afraid of the underground. She would not die afraid of being crushed by stone, surrounded by the embrace of Mother Earth. Sylvia might have died at peace, if not for the thoughts of her husband, of Arturo, of Joe and Gerald, of those she failed to help, because of her own fear of what awaited her above the earth. And anyway, with Gerald's body sealing her in, there was nothing else she could really do but die. You're listening to Hainai by Motsi Dapul. Hey everyone, this is Monsi. Currently, the death toll in Gaza has reached over 11,000 and is still rising. Over 3,000 children, many infants. Israeli Agricultural Minister Avi Dichter describes forced expulsion of Palestinians as a second Nakba, mirroring the large-scale imperialist displacement that took place when Israel was founded in the late 1940s. Currently, there are still over 1,200 Palestinians being held hostage by Israel, imprisoned without trial. Israeli forces are referring to journalists as Hamas for simply recording the events as they happen and reporting truthfully. They bomb hospitals and ambulances with claims Hamas are sheltering there. Doctors Without Borders has reported that Israeli forces shot people fleeing from Al-Shifa Hospital. Video evidence shows that despite holding up white flags, Palestinian civilians were still shot and killed while attempting to evacuate. Video evidence also shows that despite reporting evacuation zones as safe, Israel also bombs the safe zones. An early example was when Israeli airstrikes killed an Al Jazeera journalist's entire family in an alleged safe zone. Israel has also referred to the dozens of UN workers they've killed as Hamas. They have provided no evidence for any of these claims, using them as justification to murder thousands indiscriminately. As a Filipino, this is all chillingly familiar, because in the Philippines, there is a phenomenon called red-tagging, where people are accused of being communist rebels to justify state-sanctioned violence and murder. Philippine government officials have red-tagged teachers, activists, and even those giving out free food during the pandemic. 
The situation has been dire for weeks, but calls for a ceasefire have had huge effects. Belgium is calling for EU sanctions on Israel. President Emmanuel Macron of France has called for a ceasefire despite early on attempting to sanction protests in support of Palestine. Please keep pushing for a ceasefire so that world leaders can feel pressured enough to put an end to this genocide. Because that's what it is, according to multiple experts, humanitarian groups, etc. Call your reps and keep demanding a ceasefire. Email them, fax them, overwhelm them until they call for a ceasefire. Fivecalls.org is where U.S. constituents can call their legislators and reps to call for a ceasefire. Actionnetwork.org slash letters slash tell dash congress dash ceasefire dash now is where U.S. constituents can write to members of Congress now and ask them to prevent further atrocities and massive loss of life. nccm.ca slash ceasefire is where Canadian constituents can write to all Canadian MPs to call for a ceasefire. Map.org.uk slash campaigns slash protect dash Palestinians dash against dash atrocities dash in dash Gaza is where UK constituents can email their MPs to call for a ceasefire. We've attached all details in the description of the episode. Thank you all. Maraming maraming salamat. Hey everyone, this is Reg Helly, co-creator and co-producer of Hainai. Hainai is a podcast produced by Motsi Dapol, Yoi Halago, Alisa Jimenez, and me, and licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial share-alike 4.0 international license. This episode was co-produced by Jesse Goodsell and written and directed by Motsi Dapol. If you'd like to chat with other listeners when this episode goes live, we do a live premiere every other Sunday at 9pm Eastern Standard Time or Toronto Time on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash to help support the production of Hainai, you can subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash We've just started our early access program, where we release episodes three days earlier on Thursday at 9pm Eastern Standard Time or Toronto Time. You can also get bonus video and audio, art, and behind-the-scenes content, as well as join polls for the show. If you can't subscribe monthly, you also have the option to buy us a milk tea on coffee.com slash that's ko-fi.com slash Hainaipod. Our ad-free Hainai album, which has our official music and full episodes from Act 1 and 2, is also available in our coffee store. Hainai is now officially part of the Rest Equal Network. That means our episodes are now available on Acast, along with YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website, HainaiPod.com, for more news and updates, and don't forget to follow us on our official blog, HainaiPod.tumblr.com, as well as our socials Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at HainaiPod. We hope you enjoy our Act 3 episodes, and as always, thank you, we love you, and hanggang sa muli. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 